I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be in verses 1 through 5 in just a moment. There's a story, most likely a legend, about George Washington that I came across this week. I tried to verify it, but with most stories that old, uh, it's pretty hard to do sometimes. But the story goes that General Washington was uh, riding his horse one day, he was going down a road, and there was a tree fell in the road, and there were several soldiers there working. It was a very large tree, and they were trying to get it moved out of the way. And there was a, an, a soldier on a horse, and he was there barking out orders, but he wasn't doing anything to help the soldiers. And Washington rides up and he asks what's going on. And he asks the man, why are you not down there helping them? And the man said, well, I'm a corporal. I'm their commanding officer. I have authority over them. They do what I tell them to do. And I sit here and I get to tell them what to do. I don't have to get down there and help them. And so George Washington dismounts and he goes over there. He's a very strong man and he helps them. And with, with his help, they're able to get that tree out of the road and clear the road. And Washington, indignant, goes and mounts his horse and tells the corporal, next time you need help, you come and ask your commander-in-chief. And this is just one example of, of Washington's humility. He was a great man and flawed man in many ways, but he was a man of humility. He was not afraid to get down off his horse and help uh, the people around him. So too uh, does the Church of God need pastors who are willing to get down off their horses and help people uh, and lead them by example and lead them with humility. Uh, the title of the sermon this morning is Humble Shepherds and Those Who Follow Them. If you found your place in God's Word, I invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you now, humbling ourselves before your word. Would you remove every ounce of pride that we have, Lord, and help us to submit uh, to your word by the power of your spirit. Help us to set out all distractions at this point, Lord, and that we would hear from you. It's by your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we've been working through this letter of 1 Peter, we've made it all the way to chapter 5. Next Sunday, we will wrap up our study in this epistle, this first letter of Peter. Peter has reminded us of the glorious salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. He's given us instructions of how we're to live in this life as we sojourn here for a little while on earth. And he's prepared us for the suffering that inevitably will come. As we come to this last chapter of Peter's letter, he ties these themes together with an emphasis on humility. We'll see this 
in a bit more detail a little later, but I want you to go ahead and look at the middle of verse 5. Keep your Bibles open and look at the middle of verse 5. Peter gives a command to all of us. He says in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. That's the general command to each of us. We're all to be clothed in humility. But before Peter gives that specific, excuse me, before he gives that general command in verse 5, he gives specific application. In verses 1 through 4, he gives specific application to the pastors, to the elders, how to serve and lead with humility. And then at the beginning of verse 5, he gives uh, an admonition to those who are younger. So we're going to see those specific applications, but the general uh, principle is there in verse 5. Now, I tell you that now so that you'll see where the text is going. I want you to understand what Peter is doing. So we begin in verse 1 with a specific application. And Peter begins speaking to the elders, but he begins as an example himself of humility. Verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter is speaking specifically to the elders of the churches of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, those churches that he identified at the beginning of the letter. Now, we know uh, elder is not a, a title that we commonly use in uh, most Southern Baptist churches. Now, a few generations ago, that would have been more common. They did use the title elder uh, far more frequently in the past. It's not a title that we use very often today. As we saw in our study of Titus, though, it's, it's simply another name for pastor. It's another title for the office of pastor. But there are some denominations who would look at these verses specifically and they would say, no, there's actually a lot more going on. They would say there are multiple offices referenced here in these verses. You see in verse 1 that he mentions the office of elder. Verse 2, uh, Peter uses the, the word shepherd. He uses it there as a verb. But the noun form is pastor. That's where we get the title, pastor. And then later in verse 2, you see that he says exercising oversight. Exercising oversight is the Greek word episkopos. The reason I say that is because you can hear in that episkopos, episcopal. The Episcopalian form of church government uh, would see this as being the office of bishop and that the bishop would be someone who has authority over multiple churches. So some people would look at, at these verses here in 1 Peter and say, well, you have pastor and you have elder and you have bishop and those are actually different things. But the historic Baptist position is that, no, those are actually all the same office, the office that we call pastor. This is one example in the New Testament where all these verbs, are, all these nouns are used here in one place. You see it in Acts. You see them used interchangeably all across the New Testament. And I believe that Peter is simply speaking to the pastor here. Um, so uh, elder is a biblical term. Pastor is a biblical term. Bishop is a biblical term. But now if you want to start calling me Bishop Charles, just know that it may take me a little time to start responding to that. I wouldn't be very used to that. Uh, but these are all biblical titles. So Peter is speaking to the pastors of these churches. And he has a strong request, a strong exhortation, an urgent plea to the elders. But what does he root his authority in? Look there in verse 1. He says, I exhort you as a fellow elder. Does he say, I, Peter, an apostle? No, that's not what he says. Now, he has identified himself as an apostle earlier in the letter. 
as he began the letter, he vested it in his apostolic authority. But here he simply says, I'm a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Why does that matter? Peter is saying, listen, men, I know what I'm about to tell you. I know what I'm asking of you, and I know what you're going through. I'm a pastor just like you. I'm a fellow elder just like you. So Peter says, I'm a fellow elder, but also I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. You see, Peter was with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. He saw the opposition arise. He saw Jesus arrested. And even that night that Peter was warming himself by the fire, denying our Lord, he knew what was going on inside Caiaphas' house. Peter was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Peter saw these things, yes, but the word witness means far more than just seeing with your eyes. Peter is a witness that can give testimony. Like a witness in a courtroom, Peter is able to testify to this, that the road to glory is paved with suffering. That just as Christ suffered and then entered into his glory, that's the trajectory of Christ's life. And that's the trajectory of the Christian's life. The road to glory is paved with suffering. So not only did Peter witness the sufferings of Christ, but Peter is also a partaker, a partner. He is someone in the fellowship of all who will receive the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, time and time again, Peter keeps rooting our behavior in this life with the life to come. He tells us that because of what Christ has done for us and because Christ is coming again, this should affect how we live in the here and now. And the return of Jesus Christ is stated as a matter of fact that is simply waiting to be revealed, to be unveiled before our very eyes. Do you see how Peter is demonstrating the humility that he's calling the apostles to? Peter doesn't say, hey, fellas, you know me. I'm one of the apostles. I'm kind of a big deal. Some people would say that I'm the first pope. You really need to pay attention. That's not what he says. He says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ and the glory that's to be revealed. Peter doesn't throw his weight around. He humbly reminds them why they should listen to what he has to say. So in verse 1, we see this example of Peter's humility. But when we come to verse 2, we get the first command of chapter, two, of chapter 5. To shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So we move to the second idea, the exhortation to pastors. Or humility. The imagery of shepherding is quite common in the Bible, as you well know. The Psalms are full of examples of God himself being described as the shepherd of God's people. Psalm 23 being the most famous example, the Lord is my shepherd. As the true shepherd of Israel, God assigns that responsibility to certain people to shepherd the flock of God. God being the chief shepherd, he assigned others to shepherd Israel. Now, under the new covenant, God still has the authority as chief shepherd, and he assigns certain people to shepherd the flock of God, the church. What exactly does that mean? What all does Peter have in mind when he exhorts these fellow elders to shepherd the flock of God? Well, no doubt Peter has in mind one particular conversation that he had with Jesus many years earlier. How could he ever forget? 
As we've remembered multiple times in our study of this book, Peter denied our Lord not once, not twice, but three times. And even as Jesus had predicted Peter's denial, Jesus also predicted everything that came to pass. Everything that Jesus said was going to happen came true. Jesus was arrested. He was crucified. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And in his resurrection appearances, Jesus appeared to his disciples many times. But one particular time had to have stood out in Peter's mind. One particular morning, Jesus appeared to his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And just as Jesus, uh, just as Peter had denied Jesus three times, Jesus restored Peter three times. You see, Peter was trying to return to the life of a fisherman. But Jesus gives him a new assignment, that of a shepherd. Three times Jesus entrusts the flock of God to this shepherd fisherman, Peter. What was Jesus's triple refrain in John 21? Feed my sheep. Teach my sheep. Give the people of God the life-nurturing, soul-sustaining Word of God. When Paul gave to Timothy and to Titus the qualifications of a pastor, Paul emphasized that the great majority of, of the character traits needed to be on virtuous character. But he said there's one skill set you need to look for. There's one ability that this man needs to be able to have, and that is able to teach. The responsibility of the shepherd of God is to teach the Word of God. Now, contrary to what you might think by looking at many so-called churches around us, the command of Jesus is not, entertain my sheep. Jesus did not say, amuse my sheep or give my sheep a new gimmick every week. He did not say, coddle my sheep. And he did not say, lull my sheep. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter takes this message that he has been entrusted with, knowing that it won't be long before he sees Christ face to face, knowing that it won't be long before Peter will die. He instructs these fellow elders. He reminds them of their primary responsibility to feed the flock of God, the word of God, by the spirit of God, for the glory of God. Because the responsibility of shepherding is so important, it's always a temptation for the pastor to think more highly of himself than he ought. It's easy for a shepherd to become a haughty shepherd rather than a humble shepherd. It's easy for the shepherds to forget whose sheep they tend. So Peter reminds us, this is the flock of God. If a shepherd ever begins to think that these are he, his sheep and not God's sheep, then disaster is not far away. Abuse is on the horizon. Mismanagement is inevitable. Pastors are to shepherd the flock of God. These are God's sheep. And God does not take lightly the abuse of his sheep. Some of you have lived long enough that you have seen abusive shepherds. Perhaps you have been their victim. So I want to pause for just a moment from 1 Peter and I want to read you a passage from Ezekiel chapter 34. Because I want it to be very clear that God takes seriously this responsibility to shepherd the flock of God. Hear how seriously God responds to those shepherds who have failed the sheep in Ezekiel 34. In verse 2 it says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. 
prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should you not, shepherds, should you not feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. It's a serious responsibility to be entrusted with shepherding the flock of God. Woe to any man who takes that responsibility lightly. But Peter doesn't give every pastor the responsibility for every congregation. He entrusts pastors with one congregation. You see, God has one universal church, the flock of God. But he tells pastors to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's the local church. You see, no pastor is responsible for all Christians everywhere. The shepherd is to pastor the flock of God that he's among. There are a few implications from that. First, the pastor has to be able to identify who is in the flock. Hebrews 13 reminds the shepherd that he will give an account to God for the souls of the sheep in his flock. That's a serious matter. For a shepherd to tend the flock well, he has to know who's in the flock. Who has covenanted together with a local body of believers? Who has joined the local church? The New Testament has no concept of renegade sheep who refuse to join the flock but want the care of the shepherd. The pastor is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. This also means that the pastor has to be among the people. The shepherd must be with the sheep. One area that I'm always trying to improve in is to be with you. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just in the church building, but with you as you go throughout life to visit with you in your homes, to pray with you, to read God's word with you, to hear how God has worked in your life. Because the shepherd is to be with the sheep. Peter adds one more important phrase here in this command. He says, exercising oversight. What does that mean? We've already mentioned that some would say, well, this is the office of bishop and it means you have control over a bunch of different churches. I don't think that's what it means. At the very least, I believe that it means that it involves something that most pastors do their best to avoid. And that's administration. The mundane day-to-day oversight of the practical day-to-day operations of the church. 
Many pastors want to get away from that. They say, I want to just take care of the spiritual things. And they put on their spiritual voice when they say that. But what they fail to see is how God here in 1 Peter closely relates shepherding and oversight. The shepherd must oversee the day-to-day work of the church. And the one who's administrating the work of the church must be a shepherd. He must have the heart of a shepherd. So we're to administer the programs of the local church, the practical processes, even the paperwork for the spiritual well-being of the sheep. More could be said here, but we have to move on. This is the big command, and I wanted to spend time on it. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. But how are we supposed to do that? That's always the question. How, Peter? How do you want me to do this? Well, Peter gives three couplets, three sets of ideas. Did you notice them there in verses 2 and 3? Peter says, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering, but being examples. Like a good teacher, Peter clarifies what he means. Don't do it this way. Instead, do it that way. Sometimes you just, you can understand the concept, but you need a little clarification. In my undergraduate studies, I earned a degree in animal science. Now, I don't remember a whole lot of what I heard in those classrooms. That's really more about me than it is about the professors. They did a fine job. But I do remember the things that I had to take from the classroom and actually put to practice on the farm. The things where I learned, don't do it this way, instead, do it that way. Peter is teaching the elders, the pastors, the same thing here. He says, don't do it this way. Instead, do it that way. Because it would be possible for a pastor to hear what Peter has said so far, shepherd with oversight, and for the pastor to begin to adopt the wrong attitude rather than the humility that Peter is teaching. So Peter clarifies, not under compulsion. The pastor shouldn't have to be dragged out of bed, kicking and screaming every day to go and do the work of shepherding. In fact, there's a certain desire that is required of the shepherd. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, If anyone desires to the office of overseer, of bishop, of pastor, if anyone seeks that office, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing to desire to be a pastor. But that's not enough. In fact, desire is actually insufficient. James warns us in the third chapter of his book, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that, he, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Weighing the seriousness of the responsibility, the pastor must enter ministry willingly, not under compulsion. John Chrysostom was a pastor in Antioch in the 4th century. Now, that nickname, Chrysostom, that was given to him essentially means golden mouth. That gives you an idea of how good of a preacher John Chrysostom was. You can still read his sermons today, and they're just as edifying today as they would have been way back in the fourth century. Well, as you can imagine, as word got out about old golden mouth John, search committees came looking for him. They wanted him to move and relocate to where he was. But there was one particular search committee that was very zealous because they worked for the crown. And the crown wanted John Chrysostom to come and be the archbishop, to be the pastor of the capital city. And John didn't want to go. And so they essentially sent soldiers and kidnapped him and took him in the middle of the night 
to Constantinople, where he became the new pastor of Constantinople. He became the archbishop there. Now, I know there are times that search committees get desperate, but this is a pretty rare circumstance where you actually go and physically kidnap your pastor and bring him to the new church. This is not the sort of compulsion that you want for your pastor. Peter says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Then Peter says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, you may not think of the first century in the Middle East as a particularly wealthy place. If you could time travel, that may not be the first place on your list that you would like to go. But make no mistake, there was great wealth to be had even back then. So even then, Peter and Paul both warn against a shepherd who is seeking filthy lucre, as the King James puts it. Paul told Titus that a pastor must not be greedy for gain. And he told Timothy that a pastor must not be a lover of money. If the risk of the pastor being in ministry was so great in the first century, how much greater do we think it is in the 21st century? It's been almost 100 years since Sinclair Lewis wrote his novel called Elmer Gantry. Now, whether you've read the book or seen a movie based on the book, we're all familiar with this image of a hypocrite like Elmer Gantry, who enters the ministry not for noble reasons, but merely to see how much wealth he can get and how, much, how many women he can pursue. That's the, the vision of Elmer Gantry. We all recognize this type of a hypocritical preacher. And the reason that stereotype works is because we've seen it played out before. If I gave you enough time, most of us could go around the room and think of someone that we know who has famously fallen from ministry. Whatever reasons are involved when a pastor falls, far too often is really common that there's a love of money wrapped up in their sin as well. But Peter says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You see, the stereotype is that preachers only want to talk about money, and so therefore, many preachers never talk about money. If you're here for the first time today, we don't normally talk about money. But it is very clear in the Scriptures that God cares about our finances, that God speaks about our money, that God speaks about how we should support the church through our financial gifts and our offerings. The Bible really does speak about a pastor's salary. It really does address all of those things. And so if the Bible talks about it, we must speak about it. But a shepherd of God must never twist the Scriptures for shameful gain. Finances are not the pastor's motivation. He is to serve eagerly. Now, I'm a firm believer that a pastor can serve the church far better if he's not concerned about how he's going to feed his family. And I'm grateful that y'all feel the same way as well. But ministry is never supposed to be simply an ends to a paycheck. And if a pastor, if a minister ever gets into that frame of mind, he's on dangerous, dangerous territory. Peter says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Being examples to the flock. Peter has exalted the work of the shepherd. Even if a pastor is young, he's referred to as an elder due to the maturity and the responsibility of the job. Therefore, it would be really easy for a pastor to get puffed up and to begin to use his authority in a harmful way to domineer over the very sheep that he's supposed to be feeding and protecting. The King James Version uses an interesting phrase. It says, neither as being lords 
over God's heritage. That idea of lording it over points us back to what Jesus taught to knuckleheads on the road to Jerusalem back in Mark chapter 10. And thankfully, this is one of the times that Peter was not the knucklehead. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus had already given multiple predictions of his death, burial, and resurrection. He's told them what's coming in Jerusalem. And what is on the mind of James and John? Two brothers, they go and ask Jesus, hey, can we sit on your left side and your right side when you enter into your glory? Jesus has just talked about saving the sins of all humanity, and they're concerned about where they get to sit in heaven. Jesus tells them what Peter is telling us here in this letter, that you can't have the glory without the suffering. The road to glory is paved with suffering. When the other ten heard what James and John were saying, they were angry. So Mark chapter 10 verses 42 and following say this, Jesus called them to himself and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is saying, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the lost world. Don't be like people without Christ. They lord their authority over their subjects. Instead, be like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Sacrifice like Jesus. Peter has given these three examples of how not to shepherd, how not to do ministry. The shepherd is not looking for earthly rewards. Instead, he's to look for the eternal reward. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here is the reminder that just as this is not your flock, this is the flock of God, I nor any other pastor is the all-important shepherd. Christ is the chief shepherd. The pastor is not his own boss. He works for Christ. And what did Jesus say himself at the end of this book? Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. James and John wanted glory without suffering, reward without difficulty. Peter has warned the pastor not to seek earthly short-term rewards like money and power. But he didn't say there was no reward for serving Jesus. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. And in those days, athletic champions and military heroes, they were often awarded a leafy crown of evergreen. That may not sound like much to us today, but it meant a lot to them. It was a high honor. But eventually that crown would fade and that glory would fade. We focus a lot on awards and on honors here in our culture. But even the highest honors will fade away. Eventually the materials fade and the memories fade. But when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd will indeed appear when his glory is revealed, as Peter has taught us multiple times in this letter. The same glory that Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, we will see one day revealed in all of its splendor. 
We will behold Christ in all of his glory. And when he comes, he is bringing rewards with him. For all who are in Christ, he holds eternal life. The Bible speaks in several places about crowns. And they often seem to be referring to eternal life. Perhaps Peter means more here. But his intent is not for us to become distracted and fascinated about crowns and eternal rewards. Because that defeats the purpose of serving humbly without a focus on reward. But make no mistake, the chief shepherd sees. He sees the shepherd and he sees the sheep. And he's coming soon, bringing his rewards with him. Now, Peter has spent the majority of this text on his command to shepherds. So we've spent the majority of the sermon on this one command. But remember that Peter is fleshing out this general command of humility. We've seen that the elders, the shepherds, the pastors, the bishops, whatever word you want to use, they are to serve humbly. But when we look at verse 5, we see that those who are younger are to submit to the elders. Now, who's he talking to? Is he only talking to those who are biologically younger than the pastor? If you're older than the pastor, does that mean that you don't have to listen to what he has to say, that you don't have to follow his example? Well, not quite. Remember that Peter was not emphasizing the age of the pastor, but rather he was referring to the office when he spoke of him as an elder. In the same way, I don't think that Peter's point when he refers to the younger means age. Yes, it it would include those who are physically younger, but it would also refer to the general congregation, those who are not elders or shepherds or bishops. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject. Submit. We thought we were past that part of the book. We remember that Peter's talked about how uh, Christians are, Christian citizens are to submit to authorities and how slaves are to submit to masters and wives are to submit to husbands. But now he says the youngers are to submit to the elders. Now, the writer of Hebrews makes this very clear. Hebrews 13, verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Just as we saw earlier in the book, the rule of submission is clear, but we understand that it is not absolute. There are limits to the shepherd's authority. And Peter has already emphasized ways that the pastor is not to use his authority and his leadership. So we return to where we began with a third command in the middle of verse 5. Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This phrase for clothe yourselves, it seems to refer to the apron that a servant would wear when he performed a menial task. Peter is almost certainly thinking of that time when Jesus girded himself with an apron And he humbled himself, washing his disciples' feet. As we, as the body of Christ, as we suffer together, as we sojourn together, as we lead and we follow together, how can we be what God has called us to be without humility? And when we see ourselves as we truly are, when we remember what we've been saved from, how can we have room for pride? 
We all know that uh, we have to have oil in our vehicles to make them run smoothly. One writer has said that humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. You see, humility is the hinge that this chapter hangs on. We'll consider it further next week, but Peter closes this passage with a proverb that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now think about the source of that saying, the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs as a whole is written from a father to a son, from an elder to a younger. And the wisdom of Proverbs teaches us the humility that we need as we relate to one another. Now, as we come to a conclusion, some of you may be thinking, Pastor, what am I supposed to do with all of that? It sounds like most of that message was meant for you. Well, you need to know what God demands, what He expects, both of His shepherds and His sheep. And perhaps you're thinking, there's no way that I'm submitting to a young pup pastor. I understand. But I would urge you to submit to the chief shepherd this morning. Because His ways are higher than ours. And God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You may have been hurt by a shepherd in the past, but you need to be comforted this morning by remembering that the chief shepherd will never hurt you. He will never leave you. We've already heard in Ezekiel 34 how seriously God takes it when His shepherds fail. No matter what wrong you've experienced, the chief shepherd sees. He knows He will make all things right. Under shepherds fail. Pastors fail. I will fail. But the chief shepherd never fails. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. You may be drowning in pride this morning. If you died right now and you had to stand before a holy God and you had to answer to Him, you would start boasting of all the good that you've done and how much better you are than so many other people. But can I tell you, as a loving pastor, that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you are rejecting Christ this morning, then God opposes you. Hear that very clearly. If you've rejected Christ, would you repent? Would you turn from your sins and trust Christ today? Because God gives grace to the humble. In just a moment, we're going to have a a time of, of silent prayer so that before anything else happens, before we move on with the rest of the service, that you have time alone in your heart with God. And then we'll continue our time of response with prayer and with singing. And if you need to speak with me about trusting Christ today, I would be honored to do that at this time. If you need to pray, you can do that there in your seats. You can do that here at the front. But let's take a moment now and bow in our hearts in silent prayer.